Did the demons know that Jesus was God? Did the devil himself know that Jesus was indeed divine, the second person of the Trinity? What do you think? Raise your hand if you think yes. Raise your hand if you think no. I tend to think actually no. After reading the scriptures and some data from the church fathers, I don't think the devil knew that Jesus was God at this time, certainly at the crucifixion. But stick with me here. Again, this is Father Diorio opining. This is not official teaching of the church. So I very rarely give theological opinion, but I think it's very insightful for our passage today when we approach the scriptures in this way. Think about it. It begins with a condition. If you are the Son of God. So he's questioning Jesus being the Son of God. Remember, Son of God is not even a divine title. Given 2 Samuel 7, every heir, every Messiah, every son of David was considered son of God. Because in 2 Samuel 7, he says to David regarding Samuel, his son, he shall call me his father and I shall call him son. So son of God was simply a title that meant you were king of Israel. This would be fulfilled by any earthly, merely human Messiah. But furthermore, we have some other data. Listen to 1 Peter. These things have been announced to you by those who preached the good news through the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. So there were some mysteries kept in the proclamation of the gospel, mysteries kept even from the angels. In addition, from the apocryphal ascension of Isaiah, it confirms that the angels did not know the mystery of the incarnation. Further, Ignatius of Antioch says this, and hidden from the prince of this world, meaning the devil, was the virginity of Mary, her childbearing, and likewise also the death of the Lord. Three mysteries cry aloud, which were wrought in the silence of God. Which is pretty astounding. Ignatius of Antioch is a pretty solid source from the church fathers to say that those three mysteries, the virgin conception, the virgin birth, and the death of the Lord, the fact that God himself would die on the cross, that's a pretty powerful statement from the church father that those three were mysteries, not to mention Psalm 24, which is attested by many church fathers as who is this king of glory, the angels questioning this magnificent king in the ascension, who is this king of glory ascending in humanity, but also in the glory of divinity, and it's attested that these angels are asking the question to the entourage of angels accompanying Jesus as he ascended into heaven. So that's all background to show I don't actually believe that Satan knew that Jesus was God at this point. And the last consideration for our purposes, what's the definition of hell? Deprivation of God, right? Complete deprivation of God. Now, all the people who lived before the death of Jesus on the cross were in that state. They couldn't open, couldn't be, the gates of paradise were not open to them yet. So they were in a place where they weren't able to enjoy the vision of God. Now the only way for God to go to a place where by definition is to be not with God, which is hell, he would have to be shrouded in something different, in humanity. That the moment that the human body and the human soul of Christ were severed, that God could finally go to the one place where never before could he go. God, who is life itself, could 
descend to the world of death. It's like a Trojan horse operation. If the devil knew that the moment that this humanity, the body and the soul of Jesus would be separated and his soul would immediately take God to the one place where by definition he couldn't go, then that plan, Satan wouldn't permit Jesus to die. That's my hypothesis. That's Father Diorio's hypothesis. So it's worth thinking about and praying about, but certainly the great mystery of the incarnation. Some of the angels knew for sure, right? St. Gabriel, for example. I don't even know if all the holy angels of God knew this great mystery until it was fully revealed at the crucifixion. Now, what do we glean from the three, what are three spiritual lessons we can glean from today's readings? And I propose these three. First, humility, this great and spiritual battle. We need humility. Second is our enemy is a liar. It's important to remember this. And third is the power of the sacraments to ward off evil. So the humility. We hear from our first reading and we hear from our second reading the importance on, of calling on the name of the Lord, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is probably the most fundamental aspect for us here today, this topic on humility. It's easy in a place where we have so many things accessible to us. So many of you are in jobs where you're pretty high up and you're used to asking for things to get done and things get done. That's super important for where we are in our jobs and our offices. But it also comes with this difficult spiritual snag, which is before God, all of us are helpless, that we all need God's help. So it's difficult for us who are in places where we're used to having things on demand, where we're used to asking for things to get done and they get done, for all of those aspects of our humanity to then turn to the spiritual realm and say, I can't do this on my own. I can't just will it to be done and suddenly I can do it. So this spiritual humility calling on the name of the Lord, where he is the one who helps us, is absolutely essential in the spiritual battle. And all of us, regardless of our position or state in life, need to remember this fundamental lesson. We can't save ourselves. We have to call on the name of the Lord. This concept of humility is absolutely essential in the spiritual battle. So much so that Jesus himself, who is God, gave us this model. He did not, he's God. He did not need to patiently be tempted by the devil in all these ways. He is God. And yet he himself submitted to the humiliations of temptation to show us the way that even Jesus, who is God, shows that trusting in the Father and being delivered by him, not taking things into his own hands, making the bread when he wants it to be made, that Jesus himself, who is God, trusts in the Father and in humility humbly submits to the entire universe who never needed anyone's help, relied on the Father. Our second lesson, the fact that our enemy is a liar. Satan is the father of lies. We can see this in a variety of ways. First, the devil simultaneously questions Jesus' sonship and also asserts that he has some sort of miraculous powers, that he can call upon God, and that things can be done miraculously. And this is so much 
how Satan works in our own life in spiritual battles. He'll simultaneously say that we have power to do everything. We don't need God. And then when we commit sin, he'll turn around and say, you don't have dignity. You are no son or daughter of God. You should be ashamed of yourself. You threw away your great dignity. You are not worthy to be called a son or daughter of God. So the father of lies does two things simultaneously in both our lives. The first saying that we have the power to do everything on our own, which is a lie. And the second, that we are not worthy to be called sons and daughters, which is also a lie. The second moment where we see that Satan is a liar is he acts like he's Lord over everything. So imagine, let's put our, ourselves in this situation. Let's assume for our purposes that Satan doesn't yet know that Jesus is God. So he's showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, which is hilarious about it because Jesus, having divine knowledge, not only does he know everything in one single act, everything in the universe, everything that ever was and ever will be and ever is, and by that same act, he sees not, not like the outside in, he sees the very essence of the thing. And not only in his knowledge is it one act of knowledge to know everything, but also his one act of knowledge is also the act that brings that thing into being and persists it in, in its being, sustains it in being. So this is insane how great his knowledge is of all these things. And the devil is going to presume to show him, oh, look at how grand these kingdoms of the world are, as if Jesus, who is God, doesn't know. This is hilarious. This is ironic. This is like the definition of dramatic irony. And yet he does this. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms, all the kingdoms. And he acts like he has the power over these things. Not Jesus, who through his one act is keeping everything that he sees in being. But the devil tries to convince him. No, I am the Lord of these things. Just bow down and worship me. It really is laughable. But Satan tries to do this in our life also. He tries to allow us to put way too much power into the devil's hands when actually he, he doesn't have that control. He doesn't have that power. He's a liar to begin with. And third, this is also ironic. He tries to use scripture against God, the author of scripture. He says, bringing him to the top of the temple, his angels with their hands will support you lest you strike your foot against the stone. And the church fathers have also pointed to the irony of this scripture reference. We had it in our psalm today. It was beautifully sung. In that psalm, the very next line, do you remember what the very next line from our psalm today was? His angels with their hands will support you lest you strike your foot against the stone. Does anybody remember? On the lion and the viper you will tread and trample the young lion and the dragon. It's a psalm about Satan himself being crushed by God. So Satan brings himself to cite a scripture to try and tempt Jesus to presume to throw himself off the temple so that he'll be saved by these angels, when actually the very next line is about how the sun will tread upon the asp and the viper and trample the young lion and the dragon, which is Satan. So this is just amazing and very ironic. But again, it shows how less the devil knows than we think he does and how much less power he actually has. 
I'm not here to tell you to not fear the power of Satan or the fact that he does do actions in spiritual battles. I just want you to remember who the enemy is. He's a liar from the very beginning. And then the third thing, the power of the sacraments to ward off evil. In Jesus' first retort, he says, Not by bread alone does man live, but every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The irony here, so everything's irony today. The irony here is Jesus himself is the word that comes forth from the mouth of God who actually gives himself to us as bread. That's amazing. So he uses this one passage that says, not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, which is Jesus himself. And the two best things we can do in spiritual battle, under spiritual temptation, is to confess our sins to God, because we actually receive graces to not sin again in that way. Unlike any other way we receive grace, like, receiving communion or the holy water font by holy water font I meant baptism actually when we remember our baptism that actually wipes away some of our sins but to receive the grace and the help of the spiritual battle confessing our sins give us gives us special grace to not sin again in that way so confession and the Eucharist the Eucharist is a great help to us in temptation and a great help to us in the spiritual so don't forget the great power. Yes, we have humility. We call on the name of the Lord. Yes, we remember that our adversary is a liar. But we also remember the great power that God gives us, and it's at our very disposal through the sacraments of confession and most holy Eucharist. So in this spiritual battle of Lent, in this time of great grace, this time of penance and fasting and prayer and almsgiving, we remember these three things, that we must have humility to call upon God for help, that our adversary is a liar, and we need to seek the help and power of the sacraments in order to truly combat in this spiritual battle.